Do you love books but don't have time to read them? Do you wish you could listen to your favorite stories while driving, working out, or doing chores? If so, you need Audible, the world's largest library of audiobooks and podcasts. With Audible, you can enjoy unlimited access to thousands of titles across genres and categories from bestsellers to classics, thrillers, romance, fiction, and nonfiction. You can also discover new and exclusive content from Audible Originals, featuring original stories and performances by celebrities and authors. Plus, you can download your audiobooks and podcasts offline for listening anywhere, anytime, on any device. And with Audible Plus, you can get even more benefits, such as unlimited listening to select audiobooks and podcasts, free exchanges and returns, and a 30-day free trial. So what are you waiting for? Join Audible today and start your listening adventure. Visit the show notes to support the show and get your free Audible trial today. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, once in a while an American film features characters that don't speak English as their primary language. I want to know a film you love that honors a character's native tongue without the need for English dubbing. You know, when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about, you know, I was trying to rack my brain of like my favorite example of that. And I was going back and back and back into, into cinema history trying to think of things. Um, and it's kind of funny that the, the real answer was right in front of my face the whole time, but it just felt so, I, I guess because it was so recent, I hadn't considered it, but it's a movie that I absolutely adored when it came out a couple of years ago. And I think was so important that the characters spoke the way they would actually speak, um, which is Minari, uh, you know, up for best picture a couple of years ago, uh, won the Oscar for supporting actress. And really, I thought a very effective film in terms of how it, really established in a way that, you know, I, I don't think we've done a good job of recently, you know, in, in of, of really establishing the idea of, of making a film that is so specific or so specific to its characters and its creators experience that it ends up becoming a more universal experience for the audience. And I think that includes, you know, the cultural elements, including the language and all of that, and not going out of its way to over explain anything or to try and go, well, this is what it'd be like for it. No, it just, you know, straightforward depiction of life on a farm for this family. Uh, and I think every part of that is just felt so honest and authentic. And that includes, obviously, its, its use of, of the characters speaking in their, in their native tongue. It's funny that you pick a movie about a farm because uh, this, this may be kind of a cheat, but I think it works. Mainly because this is a thing that people have talked about with this filmmaker, with everything he's made and is probably going to continue to make is his uh, dedication to really getting you into a time and a place. Uh, watching his movies is almost like a form of time travel, more so than like a lot of movies. Like Even some of the best movies you've ever seen don't have the level of immersion that this guy's movies bring to you. He wrote the movie with all the research he had by using uh, actual diary entries and letters from the time to make the old like puritanical english used in the witch to really feel like you're watching a different like it it almost feels like a different language it is english but if you're like really not paying attention or you're not really honed into the specific cadences of the way this english is used the way the witch uses its dialogue it's one of the first things that helps unsettle you because, like I said, his thing is immersion. And by feeling like you are in this old English, New England, I should say, farm on the outskirts of the woods, 
the creeping dread just feels even more real it it just it helps the immersion it it just makes it more dangerous honestly and uh it's one of the first that uh one of, it's it's robert Eggers' first movie and it's it's a thing he's done since he says he wished he could have done the the northman in ancient norse but he's he said the studio would just not allow it there's too much money we can't do it but it's one of the first signs that this is a guy who is going to do his own thing and he is going to not hold your hand and he's really going to drag you back into the past and if this movie was two years older i honestly would have picked it as my pick for for this episode so this is kind of my roundabout way of managing to talk about it without being able to pick it at the end of this episode so uh my pick is robert Eggers' the witch Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we're joined by Daniel Zana and Harry Ottensaucer from the Jews on Film podcast to discuss the precursor to Fiddler on the Roof, 1939's Tevia. Our guests today, well, they can actually speak for themselves. This is a unique thing for us where we're doing a little crossover here. So I'll just say that uh, I'm Mike Natale from You're Missing Out. I'm Tom Lorenzo from You're Missing Out as well. And we are joined by... Myself, Harry Adensasser from Jews on Film. And I'm Daniel Zana from Jews on Film. I appreciate the, the brevity there. I mean, I know you guys normally uh, in, on your show introduce yourselves with, you know, uh, documentary filmmaker and I believe full-time Jew is one of the introductions. It's kind of what I roll with because I don't have the, the yeah. same kind of impressive pedigree that my co-host Daniel does. So I just roll with, you know, Jewish podcaster, kind of what you signed up for. Yeah, I'm just a, I'm just a humble milkman today. You know? <laughs> well, I'm just Aren't saying, we I'm, all? Yeah. I'm just saying we're glad we didn't get into that because then, you know, on our ends, we'd have to start getting into me going, well, on my mother's side, you know, through her father, you know, it traces back to Poland and Tom would then have to respond with something like, I've seen Mel Brooks movies. So, you know, counts. we should point that out. Definitely That's counts. A, it counts. Um, you know, I'm, I'm Italian, so I could play a Jew in a movie. Yeah, so, you know, it's, handshake that's, deal. Yeah. So it's kind of just the deal. I'm so thrilled you guys agreed to come on uh, for this and, and, and have this conversation for us. Uh, and as we talked about, this is something that uh, we hope if we can pull this off, we'll be popping up in the feeds for both You're Missing Out and Jews on Film. So, Wherever you heard this, there's going to be a little extra content here and there. So, you know, we'll talk about that in a bit. But um, for those of us listening on the You're Missing Out feed, uh, could you guys just talk a little bit about what Jews on Film in general, the podcast you guys do, uh, and, and, and what you guys talk about there? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jews on Film is a podcast that Harry and I co-host uh, where we take a look at films uh, through a Jewish lens. So we'll look at films like Yentl or uh crossing delancey but we'll also take a look at films like rrr and the exorcist and find the jewishness in all of it sometimes it's very explicit and it's right there on the page and sometimes it's uh you know kind of have to stretch a little bit and, and look a little bit does that sound right harry yeah sounds about right we try to apply that jewish lens often in places where the filmmakers might not have intended it but that can kind of be some of the fun of the exercise 
Now, one, as you said, you know, the films can range from explicitly Jewish to you finding the Jewish tech. But but one theme that I think is true of all of the films you've covered on the show so far uh, is that they are all films that are relatively popular and people have seen and are really good for SEO, uh, which is great for you guys. So what we decided to do over here on You're Missing Out is make you talk about a film that was lost for decades and most people didn't know existed. Uh, I thought that was very, uh, I thought that was a cool way to kind of shake things up for you is really just tank that SEO for you guys. Just drive it right into the ground. Thank you. You, know? you are, no, yeah, this, this, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're stepping into that debate that I think Daniel and I go back with all the time where it's just like, can we just do one like kind of popular go-to movie that people love and just like pull in some more viewers. And I think Daniel likes the more idiosyncratic ones, but I will say what's funny about this choice, this Tevia, which I'll, I'll count myself among those who hadn't heard of it before. It's so closely related because it was inspired by the same source text as the Fiddler on the Roof, which is probably our most requested episode from people who say, like, we tell them we do this Jewish podcast. They're like, oh, so like Fiddler on the Roof. And we've held off do, like doing an episode on that one. But it's just kind of funny that probably our least known episode is going to be this one because we're jumping into this Tevye film, which, like you mentioned, I only heard about when you guys emailed us suggesting it. <laughs> Well, Ditto. in our in our case over here, and you're missing out. You know, this is a film about the films of the National Film Registry. So, uh, you guys get to debate whether or not you do popular films. Whereas for us, we are determined that we are going to cover every single film that has been inducted to the National Film Registry, induction year by induction year. You know, every year, Library of Congress picks 25 films that they think are uh, culturally, aesthetically, or historically significant, and and induct them. Now, sometimes those are popular titles, like 2001: A Space Odyssey, or more recently, The Dark Knight but they can also be films that are culturally significant, but maybe not uh, running on TNT all the time. Like, uh, you know, Pare Lorenz's The River, or as we're discussing today, Tevye. So we never get to really have that debate of whether or not we should do more popular films. We just have our producer, Kyle, constantly going, can't we, can't we step ahead, stick ahead and do Batman? Like, we would get so many numbers if we just skipped ahead and did Batman, and we have to go, no, buddy, that's in 30 years. We don't get near that yet. We are dedicated to doing movies that would drive David Zaslav fucking crazy to see <laughs> on his on his tax returns. And I just love the idea of you guys having to do this on like putting this on your feed. It would almost be like going to a Metallica show and then all of a sudden you're like, are they doing something from Lulu? Are they are they doing one of those Lou Reed songs? what the fuck is happening? And just being like, yeah, just roll with it, guys. This is happening. I mean, to be fair, maybe the most Jewish movie ever made until, like, you know, the Coens kind of tried to, like, double fist Jewishness 15 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's, uh... I, maybe, I, like, I don't know, you know? Uh, but, it's up there, I for mean, sure, yeah. I, so I'm so thrilled you guys agreed to do this. I thought this would be a fun one. And I also figured you guys probably weren't getting to this on your own show anytime <laughs> soon because, no, you know, you got to dig a little deep for this one. Uh, I want to ask before we start, because uh, I'm going to read the register statement in a second. Obviously, we talked about how this film we didn't necessarily know existed. But I, I, for each one of you, Tom, Daniel, Harry, uh, what is all of your familiarity with the Tevya the Dairyman character in general? Because obviously this is, Sholem Aleyhem's character going back a century in, in Yiddish literature. But what is all of your familiarity in terms of whether it's seeing Fiddler or just hearing the name or anything? Um, 
obviously we'll start with uh, well, Harry, if you want to go first, then Daniel, then Tom, I think that's probably a decent order. Yeah, sure. I, you know, not much. This definitely sent me down a rabbit hole where I'm excited to learn more, kind of explore the texts. I, you know, I was joking before that people always recommend Fiddler and we've been kind of saving it for our 50th or our 100th episode spectacular. But because of that, and just for other reasons, I had never actually seen it. I did end up watching it in preparation for this episode because I wanted to kind of see the side by side. And it was really fascinating to see how they both took the same text. And I, I would argue, and hopefully we'll we'll discuss this, but just push very different ideas out from them. And it was fascinating, but I kind of connected in some ways more to, you know, Tevia's interpretation, which I think is more aligned with uh, the original text and certainly a little bit darker and a little bit more existential in some ways. But I was I was fascinated by that choice. And it definitely has me wanting to check out more of these stories, more of the Tevia the Milkman stories and see how that tone kind of carries through the original texts. Myself, I wasn't as familiar with uh I'm familiar with Shalom Aleichem as a as a writer, um, and not super familiar with the movie. Like I, I I'm a, aware of it in the popular culture, but like Carrie said, I had not seen it. I know the songs for sure. Growing up, I've heard my parents like sing them and stuff like that, but I'd not actually sat down and watched uh, the film until you know until you know we we discussed you know doing this episode. So I kind of like Harry said wanted to compare the two. Um, so yeah. It's it's one of these like seminal Jewish movies that it's like, you know, you have like on your Mount Jumor of, of Jewish movies where it's like you have like Schindler's List and you have Fiddler and, you, you know, you could debate depending on your age. You could say like Lebowski or A Serious Man or other things or Ten Commandments. Certainly that was one in my house that we watched a lot. Um, but yeah, this one I'd not ever seen before. So I'm excited to, you know, discuss it and kind of get into it. So, yeah. Yeah, so not even like I, I knew no idea what this movie was when I sat down to watch it. Um got a little bit of like, oh, it's kind of the inspiration for Fiddler on the Roof. But that didn't help me at all because as we've talked about on this on the show before, not a musical theater person, not a, have no context what even Fiddler on the Roof is. No idea. So watching this movie and just being like Oh, so it's about an old Russian Jewish dairy man losing his mind that his daughter married a Catholic and and the whole time going, how the fuck does this become a musical? <laughs> I, I made the joke to Mike before, but like it, it would be like watching the French connection and being like, oh, yeah, they made a musical out of this. What? Well, yeah. where's, where's the joy? Where's the musical joy in this movie? I don't know. They must have found it. Zero Mistel did. Uh, um, <laughs> Topol did. Somebody found the musicality and the, the joyousness to put it on stage. But hey, I was makes me very interested in seeing Fiddler on the Roof now because it's got to be a lot of a lot of stuff. I th I feel like the French Connection one that they just actually like removed from some streaming service was probably the one you're talking about. You know, the musical French Connection. I think that was the. Didn't they recently do that? This is a topical joke that's probably not going to age very well. But you know, uh, I had to try shoot my shot. You know, they yes they did they did take some uh, specific musicality out of the French Connection. <laughs> uh, some. Added. Some s choice lyrics that uh, go over really well in Florida uh, is how I would put it. Yeah. Okay. I will say on my end, uh, you know, I had been familiar with it for a while because I was, you know, as opposed to Tom, I was very much a musical theater kid. 
Uh, so I had seen the first time I saw anything Fiddler was PBS running a clip of Zero Mustel doing If I Were a Rich okay. Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I knew Zero Mustel from the producers, so I went, well, I have to find out more about this. Uh, and a local <laughs> school was doing a production of Fiddler. So I went to go see it. It was not a good choice on my part because it was a Catholic school. Uh, <laughs> okay. It was a Catholic school doing Fiddler. And boy, howdy, have you, uh, have you never heard Yiddish phrases butchered quite as well as by like 12 and 13 year old Catholic school boys? It was a thing to witness. Um, I would end up seeing it again later. I actually recently saw um, they staged it in Yiddish in its entirety recently uh, out here in New York uh, with Joel Gray directing it, of all things, um, which was very cool. And it was quite a thing to witness uh, to hear it uh, in a way that it had rarely been performed, but was in the original language that Sholem Aleyhem had written these stories. In. Uh, right. Obviously, I've seen the film, uh, you know, the, the filmed Fiddler by, by Norman Jewison with Topol. Um, and it's actually my my uh, partner and I have a constant. I'm I'm not joking. Constant debate about Zero Mustel versus Topol is the ideal uh, Tevya. Uh, I'm a I'm a Zero Mustel man myself. I think he plays the humor a bit better. Uh, but you know, not just. And then in preparation for this, I did actually go and read the original Tevya the Dairyman stories by Sholem Lamb, which provided a really interesting insight into how this film and Fiddler came together and really kind of seeing the difference between stories that were written for people who had just recently left the old country or maybe were Mm -hmm. still in some remnant of the old country to then a movie made in the 30s specifically aimed at the Jewish diaspora in America and then a musical and movie made in the 60s and 70s aimed at the children and grandchildren of the people that made this journey and how that kind of informs what elements of this story people go to. Because, uh, you know, the Fiddler on the Roof, the musical, much more joyous and definitely way, way less angry at Hava for, for marrying into the, the Ukrainian family. Um, which I think, you know, in the broader historical context, you can definitely see why in the 1939, there was a lot more of a sense of, no, 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 we got to stick together in this. We can't be losing. Like, we got to, you know. But we will get into all of that in the historical context. Before we say what we thought of the film, let's talk about what the Library of Congress had to say. So here's what the National Film Registry said about Tevye. Loosely based on stories by renowned Jewish writer Sholem Aleichem, whose work also inspired the stage play and motion picture Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye, also known as Tevye and Tevye der Milkhiker, is the story of a Jewish-Ukrainian milkman, his wife, and their daughters, one of whom falls in love and marries the son of a Christian peasant. Tevye's paternal love causes tremendous inner, tremendous inner conflict with his devout faith and loyalty to tradition a foreshadowing of the growing conflict between Russian Christians and Jews in the early 1900s. The Yiddish-language film was written and directed by and starred Maurice Schwartz, who had performed the role of Tevye on stage two decades earlier. That's what they had to say. It should be noted, I believe he originates the role of Tevye. Not just performed, but I believe he originated it. I know Sholem Aleichem had written multiple adaptations of Tevye as a play throughout his life, 
never got to see it staged in his lifetime. But I believe Maurice Schwartz is the original um, actor to play Tevye. So that's what the Library of Congress had to say. Um, listen, I get it. They got to write it their way. I do think just growing conflict is a bit of an understatement when describing the Russians and, and Jews in the early 1900s. Bit teensy bit more than a conflict there. A little bit kind of underplays it. But do, doing, doing a lot of heavy lifting, that yeah, word. Yeah, doing a lot of heavy But um, yeah, so that's what the Library of Congress had to say. Now, I'm, I'm assuming a safe bet here, this was everyone's first time watching the 1939 Yiddish Tevya, right? I think uh, yep. this is probably the first time uh, four people at once <laughs> watched Tevya in the 2020s, I'll say. I'll, I'll shrink it down at least to the 2020s. I, I will say it got a bit of a revival because um, Kino Lorber recently put out a collection of 10 Yiddish cinema films. I mean, obviously, we, we're going to get into this, I'm sure, but like the whole Yiddish cinema boom of, of the late 30s uh you know was was a significant time but most of those films are lost and a lot of them are in poor condition so kino lorber put out this collection of 10 uh classics of yiddish cinema or actually if you read the booklet they call it 10 classics of yiddish cinema and then in the booklet the um alan lewis rickman who wrote the introduction to it goes yeah we picked five classics and then five they're kind of just kind of just programmers you know we just wanted to give you a sense of what they were like you're like all right well just let me know which ones those are before I give them the time, because boy, howdy, they, some of them are rough. Are they uh, very long movies, all of them? No, the not feature at all. Length? Oh, I okay. mean, they are feature length, but like barely. So most mm. of them are 80 to 90 minutes. Um, the only one that's longer than that in this collection is The Dybbuk, which is a Ooh. Polish film uh, that kind of helped kickstart this Yiddish cinema boom, because the interesting thing that I found out that I didn't realize is obviously in the early days of cinema, communities are having their own smaller film industries outside of just regular Hollywood, right? I mean, everybody, I think, by now knows about the race films that were produced for black audiences, like Oscar Michaud's films and, and things like that. We'll be talking about Blood of Jesus um, later this season. Um, that's not a Michaud film, but, you know, one of those films. But there was also, you know, trying to service Yiddish audience. What I didn't realize uh, until diving into this was that it's actually thanks to horror cinema that Yiddish film gets a boom. Hmm. Because right around the same time in the early 30s, uh, there were two adaptations of Jewish horror stories. Um, one was The Golem. Obviously, there had been the silent The Golem in the 20s, but there was some French-produced film in Yiddish about The Golem. And then this film, The Dybbuk, which is based on a 1912 play about this young couple who their fathers promised them to be married before they're born. And since that's since they weren't born yet, it puts a curse on them and the boy dies and comes back as a divic. And anyway, these films actually played well internationally and played well to non-Jewish audiences because they were offering horror stories that were unfamiliar to the audience who, even by 1936, had grown weary of Dracula and Frankenstein and all of that. Because of that, uh, a couple of New York film producers were like, well, okay, we can get the, the Goyish people to go see these Yiddish movies. Let's start producing them. And a surprising amount of talent comes out of that. Uh, Edgar G. Ulmer, 
who now most film fans would know him for Detour, his foundational film noir film, made a number of Yiddish comedies before hmm. he ever made his, his noir film. And that box set includes a, a set of them um, that are... I, I guarantee they were funnier in 1937 or 38. There's a lot of humor that is completely lost, uh, not just in translation, but just across the decades. But I'm, I'm certain they played like gangbusters back then. Um, you know, and the Yiddish theater scene is obviously huge. Um, Paul Muni, who won multiple Oscars. You know, we talked about him on I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. He's the original Scarface. I had no idea he actually got his start working with Maurice Schwartz, who we're talking about today, in his uh, Yiddish art theater company. So a lot of talent did come out of that. And there was actually, I mean, even, you know, my grandfather is about as Italian as it can get. Uh, but he grew up in New York in the 30s and 40s. And he would talk about these, you know, these great Yiddish actors who were, who were stars here in New York and, you know, were just respected by everybody. And my grandfather talked about going to see uh, one of these actors perform, one of these great actors, and being like, he was incredible. I could understand every fifth word, but he was incredible. You know, it was something. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Like, I used to live in New York for a while, and I, I lived on the Lower East Side on, like, Grand Street. Uh, and, you know, and I'd go around and, like, you know, there's a movie theater. I believe it's on like Second Avenue. There used to be a pizza shop next door, but there'd be all these like plaques, these like memorial plaques of like, oh yeah, this used to be this like really big Yiddish, uh, either art house theater or like a playhouse or like there's traces of Yiddish theater, you know, within uh, downtown Manhattan still all around. Like you could see the history. So hearing about all this stuff and you're sort of really painting a nice picture of what it was like, you know, to to be part of that scene. You know, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, that's that's kind of the, the thing about this that is kind of interesting to watch these films now. I mean, again, so many of them are lost and so many of them are in poor condition. But it is kind of, I think the Yiddish, golden age of Yiddish cinema that runs from the 30s to 1940 is really interesting because it's kind of the only time I can think of that there is an entire film industry that not only exists but is popular and has stars and has, you know, I mean, Tevye was the most expensive Yiddish film ever produced and you can kind of see it. Now, obviously this is the same year as Gone with the Wind. So if you compare the production values there, right. you're going to be a little surprised, but, yeah. but for what it was. Just a little bit. Yeah, just a tad. Um, but, but it is one of these things where like it had stars and it, it drew crowds and then it just ceased to exist entirely. Well, that's, I mean, that's kind of the, the, the main crux of the thing that kind of blows my mind about this whole, like, this industry and, like, Tevye itself and that it's in the uh, registry so early and everything is just that it's, a, it's an American-made movie in another language. Like, we don't, we, don't, we don't do that. Like, even now we don't do that when so many people watch, like, Korean shows on Netflix or whatever. Like, we still have people that just won't watch foreign movies i mentioned it in our intro that robert eggers wanted to do the northman in ancient norse and they were just like no absolutely not right you know you're not that big enough of a director where we'll alienate even more of the audience for your crazy insane norse viking revenge movie um you're no uh, no maurice schwartz you can't get away with it you know (laughs) yeah but but like that's the thing like mike's like you know there was all these like regional sort of you know film studios that would pop up there would be all these like you know like black exploitation was a thing but there was never like an a decade where like even when like there was the decade where 
kung fu cinema kind of dominated america they were not coming over in their original language we had to completely dice them to shit give them horrible dub jobs just because well you know nobody's going to take them seriously in the in chinese or japanese whatever country they're coming from we got to make we got to put the english stuff on it so it's just so it's fascinating that that this even like existed in and in such an early era of um, of American filmmaking, where we're just twelve years out from sound, basically, like where the jazz thing is twelve years before this, and now it's just like, all right, we you've had sound for twelve years. You go across the street to see Gone with the Wind, that's nice and all, but you come here, you're reading subtitles, guys. Yeah. You 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 know what to do. It, it's fascinating. I I think I actually even read that this might have been the first you know fully non English film that was actually inducted into the registry. I mean, you you obviously it know is, better yeah. than me. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And it's just so interesting to me because when you were talking earlier about you know horror and the way that that kind of translated, like that makes sense. I think you still see that now where horror audiences are willing to forgive a lot of you know lost in translation or things they don't get or even low production value because. At the end of the day, you're looking to be scared and you might only understand every fifth word, but something pops out, something looks frightening or memorable. Like it makes sense that that kind of would be the way that, you know, Yiddish cinema could cross the like boundaries. You, you compare that to this movie to Tevya and obviously, you know, Yiddish film was a little more established, but we were saying earlier, it is so specific. Almost every other word he's saying, he's quoting a text. And, you know, like you were saying in the translation, there's this question of how much are you actually getting if you don't speak the original Yiddish or the original Talmudic verse that he's saying and actually understand what's going on? So it's just so fascinating to me that this was the film that made it to the registry that, you know, broke through and, you know, was ultimately rec recognized as kind of the important, you know, national movie among all of them. And I will say when you talk about, you know, the specificity, uh, you guys, obviously Tom hasn't seen it yet, but you guys both watched Fiddler recently. And it was very striking to me. I, I grew up with Fiddler. I knew Fiddler. Um, but reading uh, an introduction to Sholem Aleyhem's original stories, they pointed out that like Sholem's stories were written for a Jewish audience, and the Tevye film is obviously made for a Jewish audience. But Fiddler, they went out of their way. Jerome Robbins directing it was like, we can't. This has got to be accessible to a broader audience. And it struck right. me. I saw the Yiddish production um recently uh off broadway and they have to change some lines some of them are changed for obvious reasons right um l'chaim if they just translated it straight is the most boring song in the world because it's just somebody going l'chaim 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 so it's those tweaks but then there were also things like in the beginning when Tevye's talking in tradition right they changed the lines for things where he's just in the Yiddish version, he's just talking about, you know, God is our father and the Torah is his word. And I'm like, what was in the original? And I go back and it's the point where Tevye is going now to show our devotion to God, we wear these little prayer shawls. And I, it didn't strike me until I saw the Yiddish production. How much of Fiddler is in the original production, Zero Mustel basically turning to the audience and going, now let me tell you what a yarmulke is. Mm. and you know that's to watch this to you know to watch the 39 version that has zero interest in in 
trying to explain anything to anybody. And it's oh, very, this it's, movie, this movie doesn't hold your hand at all. No, I mean, no, it's, no, it's, no, no. it's, 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 it's kind of, and it gets to that thing of like, it's 1939. It's a foreign language movie made in America. And it also just straight up does not tell you anything to give you like context or whatever. It's just like, here you go. Just, just deal with it. Like keep up, you'll figure it out. And if you don't, whatever you, the, the dad's mad, that's and, all you need to know. And not even to be clear, not even just context on Jewish tradition, but also just on Tevi in general. There's a moment that yes. I, I love um, where Golda is speaking to Tevi when they go to the priest's house, um, which is not actually in the book at all. Um, but they go to the priest's house and she goes, you, you're always, you're always quoting the Talmud, right? Which he right. doesn't do that much in this movie compared to the book. And I loved that because you have to imagine at that point, because of how big these stories were, right? I mean, they're, they're you know, it's not, I'm not saying anything new to say, you know, Sholem Aleichem's stories are some of the most significant pieces of Yiddish literature. It is, in a sense, I couldn't help but watch this thinking like, right, to the audience that it was playing to in 1939, the character of Tevye the Dairyman was as well-known, even if you'd never read the stories, you're just aware of him, as Sherlock Holmes is to us, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't need... It would be like if they made a Sherlock Holmes movie and they had Watson following behind him, you know, uh, and kind of going, you know how you always say elementary, my dear Watson. Like, the, right. you don't need to... Ex some of this shtick we, we know, and that really struck me especially on this viewing is like how much this film isn't just relying on its audience knowing what a what a shiva stool is right um which i'll be totally blunt i did i needed the commentary for that one i did not i was unfamiliar with that certain things i picked up but but also just how familiar its audience was with Tavino. i mean consider that in the short stories you know and in the musical fiddler zeitel getting married to model is a huge part of it and this movie just skips right over that. It just starts and it's like, look, she's, you know, you know what happened. You guys, we, are, we all know the story. Isn't it, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the Shalom Aleichem story is like several, several shorter stories. Yes. And so yeah. like, like, I think this particular one is about, um, uh, is about Chaya's story, right? Chana's story. Mm -hmm. And Huddle, then it's also, right? yeah. was it? It's Huddle, right? Huddle? Yeah, there's like yeah. two different stories that this like takes its inspiration from, and um, I forget. But yeah, I think the the it seems like the the fiddler on the roof story really incorporated like more chapters from mm -hmm. that overall Tevya story to get in those different story beats to focus on the different daughters. Whereas like this one is much more focused in on like the one daughter and her her marriage to this uh, Russian person, and then also you know. There's there's a lot of similarities, but there is quite a bit of deviation in terms of how much or how little they decide to adapt from the original story. Yeah. You're right, and and it's interesting because they, Sholem published those stories over a number of years, right? And he wasn't even sure they were going to be a series. In fact, he's so inconsistent that um, we don't know how many daughters Tevya has, because in different stories he says different numbers, just based on what's convenient for the story at the time. He has as many as seven daughters, but by the end, he two of them stop existing. Actually, spoilers Richie. for the book. Spoilers for the book. More of them stop existing because one of them dies, and it's very sad. Um, so, it's so they just Richie sad. Cunningham a few of the daughters yeah, they, out they of the, uh, the stories. Yeah, they absolutely do. 
Um, so like the first two stories are about, uh, it's very funny. I texted Tom a picture of the chapter listing. Cause I said, it looks like always sunny episode titles. The first, the <laughs> oh, first, yes. the very first short story is Tevya strikes it rich. Then the next story, Tevya blows a small fortune. Right. Already. I mean, I'm so- I mean, that is just, that is just like every other episode of yeah. it's always sunny. Yeah. Um, I right. love it. But love you're it. right, Daniel. It's based on the Hoddle story and then also the final short story, which is uh, Lech Lecho, I think is the title. Lech Lecha, yeah. Yeah, Lech, thank you. I, I'm, 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 I'm going to sound you. Thank you. I'm going to sound like those kids in that Catholic school production. I apologize. Um, no, and I'm not, because I'm just not going to try. Well, yeah. or, or the original cast recording of Fiddler, because if anybody listens to the original cast recording, the guy they cast to sing Wonder of Wonders is the most Gentile human being on the face. Could also say, get thee out. That's the yes, translation. That's the translation. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, if um, that rolls off the tongue a little bit easier. Yeah. That's your way of saying, don't attempt it anymore. It's going to be sad. I, I get it. I'm not going to try. I promise. But um, yeah, so he, he just skips the last story. Um, but there is so much more in the short stories. Uh, like I said, you know, obviously there's, there's Zeidel, uh, Zeidel, Hava, and you know, th- there's the three daughters that do get married in Fiddler, right? There's the one who marries the tailor. There's the one who marries the communist. Who, by the way, interestingly, Sholem never calls that out specifically. In the original Sholem short story, it's much more subtle, where it's just she told me he's a student and uh, he's got a lot of crazy ideas, and now he's going to Siberia. Who can say? Um. But then he has two more daughters, one of whom is promised to a wealthy boy, and when he rejects her, she commits suicide. And then his youngest daughter, uh, who ends up marrying a wealthy man who she doesn't like, because, well, Papa needs the money. Uh, And then that older rich man offers to send Tevye to Israel, and there's a whole thing about Tevye's going to go to Israel because he... The running thing throughout the short stories is how much Golda wants to see uh, all of these sites throughout Jerusalem, which comes up again, obviously. They, they thread that into the film a little bit. And then he doesn't end up going because Golda gets sick and Zeidel's husband dies and he has to take care of them. Uh, poor model. In the short stories, he's got a lot to do. He's dead by the time this movie starts. They just off him right away. Well, guys, you know, just, I've got... just wanted a sewing machine. Just... I, I've, I've got a real simple solution for Tevya. And I don't know why he didn't think of this. Stop having daughters. Well, you know, yeah, that's that's uh... maybe m- maybe a son it might might be a little less problematic for you. You might have one less stressor in your life. Just, just saying, he could have tried. I'm just saying, you know, life's all about trying. That's that's some advice he gets from someone in the books. <laughs> Oh, really? Well, that's, well I'm that's, glad I'm a classic literature character. That, that is so. that is part of the appeal of, of these short stories is it is very I, I'm gonna draw this comparison later a million times, but there is a Larry Gopnik element to Tevya, where he's you know, where he's this guy who's like, listen, I can I, I wanna find the answers here. I I've got problems, I wanna figure them out, so I'm gonna turn to the scriptures, I'm gonna turn to the rabbis. And he gets none of the answers he needs. He's just continually thrown by this. Um, but it's but- it's so funny to think about, though, because like we talked about that this movie was lost for decades, and yes. it wasn't a print was found in '78. So I'm just like imagining Joel and Ethan Cohen watching this movie after like spending all night helping Sam Raimi make the Evil Dead, <laughs> and being like, you know what? Someday, once we're done with this Evil Dead picture, 
we're gonna do something with this Tevia, this Tevia stuff. We'll 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 work with that at some point. Was, but right now, Bruce Campbell needs to get cleaned up with all of that blood. I was gonna say kind of the vibe of a lot of their films when you think about it, you know. But oh yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, they they definitely. It's it's always crazy to me to think that they ever worked with Sam Raimi and that they like that Sam Raimi's in a few of their movies. It's it's just it's just funny to think about like the timeline lining up in such a way where like they could have only seen the movie really until like around the time they started filming <laughs> helping film the evil dead just a little funny i think again tying it all back to horror yeah it, it wouldn't surprise me honestly if they really did you know cite this movie as some influence to them because i think even what you were saying earlier about how this movie kind of trusts its audience to a certain extent or at least it's not kind of explaining it every every step of the way I would argue a lot of the Coen Brothers movies and especially, you know, A Serious Man and some of their more explicitly Jewish ones, like even, oh, yeah. even the first sequence of A Serious Man that's entirely in Yiddish, you, I would imagine, and even me, who's, you know, more familiar, had to look up certain things that they were referencing, certain texts that they were talking about. I think it's, they really adopt that idea of trusting the audience. And we talk about that all the time on our podcast on Jews on Film, where, you know, is this movie trying to, you know, mass appeal to a broad audience and kind of dumb itself down? And is it doing, you know, the tokenized symbols of Jewishness? So, you know, you have them sitting around the Sabbath table or lighting the menorah in a very obvious and like, you know, a, they, they very slowly articulate, you know, the blessings. Like, that's one kind of movie. And I think we always respond to the ones that are really just, we're going with cultural specific, like specificity because, we don't need you to think of this as some like weird characters. Like this is the real life of a lot of people. And I know for us kind of connecting to that, some of the movies that Daniel and I respond to, you know, more than any are the ones that treat us like we're not this kind of tokenized, you know, fetish of what it means to be a Jew, but this is our life. And we, we acknowledge it. Like Daniel said earlier, we, we did that movie uh, RRR, that uh, Tollywood movie, that Indian Tollywood movie. And we thought that that movie you know, admittedly, if you're familiar with it, did a very good job at kind of not trying to explain its culture, just telling its own story. And I don't even think it was intended, you know, for the same white American audiences that ultimately embraced it. And we said, we're probably missing, I don't know if it's 20, 30% of, you know, the references, the cultural things that would make this in some ways more meaningful. But on the other hand, it's cool that we're watching a movie that's like, we trust is authentic and is honest and is accurate. So it's, it's awesome. I think that, you know, Fiddler, it's incredible that it has the wide appeal that it does and that it's become so, you know, well-known. And I, I want to say for the most part has, you know, somewhat positive representations of Jews out in the world, which is something we always kind of get excited about. But it, it's really cool that this movie Tevya just kind of says, you know, if you want to understand what's going on, do the research and kind of jump into our world. We're not going to come to yours. Well, that's that's a that's a thing that, uh, again, that struck me about this movie was and I, I love specificity for uh, any culture, not just mine or whatever, like sure. uh, the bear on TV is maybe like the most accurate representation of being an Italian American since The Sopranos. And other than that, those two shows, only TV shows that really get what it's like being Italian. But just in general, like I like watching something like this or I love watching any like foreign movie where they just you just kind of like. Just keep up, you know, fi you, you know, figure out the cultural differences and, you know, it'll make it a little more richer and all that specificity, the specificity really like this is something we talk about, too, on the show a lot, is that the specificity makes the story broader. It's almost contradictory because, you know, and we you, you talked about it with horror being able to, like, get ideas or cultures to a broader audience. It's because, you know, fear is universal. So it doesn't matter if you get it in such a very 
Jewish way like the Gollum did or whatever. It's just like the more specific you get. And I think that's why, again, to bring like something modern, the bear is so specific, not just in the Italian stuff, but the Chicago stuff, the, the, the restaurant tour stuff where there's so many people showing up. And then I read articles like, Oh, this is this famous Chicago uh, chef. And I'm like, Oh, awesome. Great. Didn't know that, but it felt authentic. Love it. You don't know who's related to who, how they know each other. It's just like, yeah, they know each other, figure it out, whatever. They're opening a restaurant. It's fine. I love just being thrown into a deep end of a story. I will say to what Harry said too, um, and comparing it to Fiddler, I thought it was very interesting. I think it's very easy if you don't have any historical context to watch this movie and kind of view Tevya the way that the musical Fiddler views Tevya for its first act, which is viewing it as like, hey man, you know, you're trapped in your old traditions, but like this is the modern age mm-hmm. and you know, you gotta you gotta adapt, you know. I, I said to Tom before, you know, that the first act of Fiddler's at energy is, hey man, hey old man, adapt or die, baby. And then act two's energy is, no, 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 seriously, if you do not adapt, you are literally going to die. And that is, you know, the difference the musical treats this particular marriage as you know you're supposed to look at tevya and kind of just go like well how can you cast out your daughter and this and that and even in in sholem's original stories it's very interesting that this story where he says well she's dead to us now the next story he writes is about how one of his daughters tried to marry the way that he wanted her to and she kills herself so i thought it was very interesting contrast to kind of in in a way go Sholem's clearly going like Tevya you took a daughter and you said she's dead to you and now you have daughters dead but I I do think that you know the commentary on the Kino set uh, Alan Lewis Rickman provided the commentary who is different from British actor Alan Rickman I want to make sure it's clear so nobody thinks that's who is the commentary everybody was thinking it (laughs) because I mean who wouldn't want to hear that voice just just telling you (laughs) stories about the making of Tevya so um so Alan Lewis Rickman is talking about it, and when it gets to the part of the, the wedding with the Ukrainians uh, and the priest's house, he just takes a whole beat where he essentially goes, all right, so if you know the musical, you probably don't think this is that big a deal. I'm going to explain to you exactly what Tsarist Russia is like, and I'm going to explain to you what a big fucking deal this is and how bad this is for everybody. And just like going through, like, you need to understand the Russian Orthodox Church was extremely anti-Semitic at the time. You need to understand that an intermarriage like this was illegal. You need to understand. And he's just like going down the lines in a lot of ways to point out something that, again, in 1939, for its audience, most of the people watching it understood. Like he, he tries to draw the parallels, and I'm, look, with anything cultural, I don't know about you guys, but like I think, you know, we're always a little wary of times in American cultural criticism where somebody goes, well, this person's experience in this culture is just like this person's experience in this culture, right? You know, it's very wary. It's a thing that a lot of cultural critics do that it always gets dicey, I think, anytime I kind of white-knuckle on my seat when they go, well, this is kind of like if you were black. No, please don't go any further with wherever that's going. Right. But he, he apologizes for it up front and kind of acknowledges. He goes, but you do have to imagine that, like, in this sense, he says, you know, a, a, a Jewish girl wanting to or a jewish person wanting to join the russian orthodox church in czarist russia in the 1910s he goes the closest equivalent you could imagine 
is is a black man in Alabama trying to join the Klan. You'd be like, what are you, this is, I promise you, this is not good. This is not a good thing. And I do think that that's, that is one element that if you're watching it for the first time, before you get to the second half of the film, you probably sit back if you don't know the history and go, so what's the big deal? She wants to marry a Christian boy. What's the, who cares? You know, what do you, you relax, man. We can all live together in peace. And then you get to the second half and go, oh, I'm sorry, what, do you, what is it you want to do? <laughs> oh, oh no. And it's, I'll say this, this is one of those things that's even sadder than it is in the book. Or maybe not sadder, but more shocking because the book doesn't show you the town meetings in the book because it's all from Tevye's perspective the people of the town kind of just show up like tail between their legs head down just going hey we gotta we gotta do this we gotta we gotta kick you out and ultimately like Tevye is the one narrating and he goes well they they did me a courtesy they said I could break my own windows before I left oh which is, but like that is the encapsulation of Shola Malayham's humor, right? Right. That is why these stories have endured so well. Is um, I forget the intro of the book basically says like his humor is not about trying to distract you, nor is it trying to say, "Hey, this isn't so bad." His humor is all rooted in just going, "This is what it is," right? Which I think is, and that carries through here. Too. Yeah. And and I think Fiddler, um, you know, on the flip side of all this, just softens. I think the stakes almost at every turn. Like one of the things that really bothered me is that, you know, the representation we get from kind of the, the Tsarist army coming in is this one guy. I forget his name. Who's you know friends with Tevia. Who's like, yeah, this isn't me. I didn't want to do this. You know, like my hands are tied. Sorry, guys, you gotta leave. You have three days to sell it. And then even as they're leaving, kind of that end note of the movie is kind of. Anatevka was fine. We're going to America. We're going to Chicago. We're going to be in Israel. Like, this is all going to be great for us. And it's just, it's a totally different tone than I think, like, the utter devastation at the end of Tevya, where it's also different because it's not the entire community leaving. It's just Tevya kind of alone, lost right. his family. Just, you know, that's it. It's just bleak. Yeah. I mean, I found that Fiddler was, like, very big in, in so many ways. Like, you know, we have the musical, it's like twice as long, there's like way more stories. So it's like a lot more to kind of like wrap your head around, whereas like Tevya is like a singular story about Tevya and his like two daughters. And it's a much smaller story. And like you said, Harry, it's just him getting like, uh, you know, kicked out, evicted from this town. Uh, we are treated to a really nice scene where like Maurice Schwartz is like signing this contract and he's like flinging ink at him and he's kind of like scribbling and in some sort of I think maybe he was scribbling in like Hebrew and like the Russian guy couldn't quite understand what was going on um but it is much more bleak at times it goes pretty dark uh, in that movie um but yeah uh oh different I mean mean, that's that that was all the shit that I was kind of like saying is like you watch this and you just go how do you get a musical out of this? Like you, right. it, 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 the only way you do it is if, in some ways, you bastardize what the actual experience is. Because mm-hmm. I really don't know how happy people would be watching a musical that is just miserable and ends with the wife is dead. The, the he's got to take care of his one daughter and her two kids. They're getting evicted because Russia's just finally just saying, "Yeah, you know, make Russia great again." Like, and and just yeah, we you know we got we got our one daughter back, but uh, we don't know what our life is going to be 
at any moment for the foreseeable future because uh, everyone in this country seemingly wants us dead. So it's, it's I mean, pretty pretty upsetting. <laughs> and to your point, um, you know, when you're talking about that, Goldie doesn't die in the musical. Nobody dies in the no musical. No I fucking mean, shit she doesn't no, die no, in the musical. Okay. I didn't even see the musical, but that's like, you're not doing that. You're not, there's no way Fiddler on the Roof. Any musical becomes a zeitgeist catching, yeah. just like rip roaring, like it's a it's on stage. And then three years later, Norman Jewison, the guy who, you know, did In the Heat of the Night, blah, 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 all this stuff. He's making this big movie. There's no way it's catching the zeitgeist if it's if fucking everyone's just dying and all of this and everything's miserable. I, mean, I will say I, I will say, though, the thing that I found most interesting with the ending is that neither one. Neither Tevya nor Fiddler technically follow the ending of the book. Because in the short stories, every short story is narrated by Tevya himself. Mm -hmm. Right? And he's, he's actually Is he telling it to the author? He's telling it right? to Sholem. And he addresses ah, Sholem okay. directly. Okay. So he's always speaking of and he's always doing this That's thing. Cool. Apparently he's based on a real milkman that Sholem Aleyhem had known at one point. Um, but he would just so the stories always begin with Tevya going, Ah, Sholem. It's, it's good to see you again. Uh, I'm looking a little fatter or I'm looking a little gray or anything. And always end with him kind of doing something like, you know, if you're interested, you could put that in a story if you want. Anyway, have a good day. But when he's telling the, sto the final story, um, you know, get the out, when he's telling that, he talks about, so we packed up our carriage and we were, we were riding it down the road and Hava approached the carriage. And and he says something as equivalent of like, and Sholem, what could I do? You know, on the one hand, she had abandoned the family. She was excommunicated. She was dead. But then how can a father hear the pleas of his daughter, begging him to look at her and not turn around? I tell you, Sholem, I didn't know what to do. Anyway, you, you have a good day. You have a good time. And like, so he just, that, and Tevye just starts talking about the weather or something. And it's like, it's such a perfect ending because you there's total ambiguity to well did he stop her or did he not, and both of these stories, both of these projects, um, have to make a definitive decision about what he does. What I think is interesting is if you had to guess, and you hear like well Tevia's the bleak film, Tevia's the you know the one that's much more serious, and then Fiddler's the much more uplifting one. You would assume they go different routes with that. You would assume that Fiddler ends with, all right, get on the carriage. You know, we're all a family. And that Tevya ends with just like a quick hug and then, you know, we, we go our separate ways. But I think that at least from what I can, you know, guess, it does seem like there was a very conscious idea at the time. I and mean, remember, in, you know, as they're shooting this movie, Poland gets invaded. You know, so there right. is a very yep. conscious effort on the part of Schwartz. Um, and I think everybody involved in the film to really make this kind of a uh, a rallying cry for the Jewish identity. It seems to be something that was very conscious. And, you know, uh, it should be noted, one quick anecdote. Um, Leon Liebgold, who plays um, the the Christian husband in this, right? Who is also in the Dybbuk. He's the main guy in the Dybbuk as well. Oh, cool. Um, and was a, a mainstay of the Yiddish theater. He's, is buried here in New York. Uh, Leon Liebgold... Um, was from Poland. He and his co-star from the Divic, who I believe he's involved with, came to America in part to make this film. They were set to return to Poland shortly before the invasion. 
Oh, the boy. only reason that they didn't go back is Maurice Schwartz had to extend filming because they filmed in Jericho, New York. Right. Which is close to where Tom and I grew up. And there was an airport nearby. And airplanes taking off, the sound and the airplanes in the background kept ruining shots. <laughs> so he had to extend shooting. And because of that, Leap Gold and his, his co-star were in America and, and were safe, basically. They didn't go back. Wow. So it's, it's a remarkable little element of this that, look, we can talk about all the reasons it should be in the registry for its cultural significance um, and for many things, but also might have literally saved lives. That's impressive. Not a lot of movies have that not going bad. for them. Right. Not a, not, not a lot of stories out there about Transformers Rise of the Beast saving anybody from barrel is all I'm saying. No, but, no but Mark Wahlberg made two Transformers movies, and as we all know, if he was on the plane, but we don't, we things would have been not different. We're not, oh, we don't have to remember he said that. Um, we always have to remember he says that. Well, not to move us away from this Mark Wahlberg thread, which I do want to thoroughly investigate. Um, what you were saying about the ending, it, it's funny. It is very surprising the way that kind of Tevya has the more open-hearted embrace and, you know, uh, Fiddler has kind of that more muted goodbye. But I think it directly has to do with the two films' relationships with, you know, the Russians, the Tsars, like the, these Christians. Because I think in uh, Fiddler, of course, the movie is going to have you kind of rooting for her at the end. Like, it's okay. Her decision was about love. She can go back because it treats, like we said, you know, it treats them like, Oh, they're not, not all of them are so bad. And look, even, you know, her and uh, her, her and her husband, like, they're not even going to stay there. He has that one line at the end where he says, you know, we, we didn't want to stay in a, we didn't want right, to live in right. a place that would do something like this. So we're going to, you know, join the fight or something. It, it just, it totally softens who these people are. And when you take Tevya, like, I remember they had this one random line that I didn't understand where uh, I think she's like, uh, She's like serving food to everyone. And, you know, her husband's like, you should come down and sit. And then like the mother-in-law is like, what? Like, I'm still hungry. She should keep, you know, serving me. And it's just such a ridiculous characterization of this, you know, mother-in-law. But the idea right. is it's to remind the audience, yeah, these are awful people. So by the time, you know, she actually comes to the end to kind of, you know, jump back to Tevya, she's running away. She has like come to her senses and is like, this is wrong with like, this is wrong. I'm, I'm returning. So it makes sense in that light, you know, why the return would be much which would be you know treated much more openly because it's like oh you finally recognize that everything you did was wrong these are awful people and you're willing to kind of come back and you know apologize to me i guess through your actions apologize to me whereas in fiddler it, it's such a ridiculous end note because it's like oh look they're not so bad she's you know she's found one of the good ones and they're going to be okay and it's just it's a totally different philosophical approach to these two movies and their relationship to, you know, the other. And I think you can very directly draw that, you know, obviously to the original text, but also to the timing of, you know, when these movies are in production, like we've been saying. Well, just like the, the, the in-laws, like her future in-laws, I think at the, at the end of the movie, like, you know, they're going to like, Tevye's essentially like a state mm -hmm. sale and they're like buying stuff, but that they're also like stealing like candlesticks and then, also stealing like her dead mom's like Shabbat outfit, like her gown. And then, and she's like, oh yeah, I'll wear this. And the mother-in-law like takes it. And it, yeah, they just seem like pretty awful people. Um, so good on her for running out. You guys, you guys do a segment on your show where you talk about, you know, and you'll probably do it after this one's up, but where you say, you know, what's this movie good for the Jews? Now, I'm not going to weigh in on whether or not Tevye is, is good for the Jews, but I think we can definitively say, not good for Russian Orthodox Ukrainians. Not coming off great in this one. <laughs> nope. Not nope. like it is. It is one of those ones where like it is that thing 
where because Tom and I uh, occasionally like to talk about one of our um, one of our favorite things in old movies, which is anti-Italian racism. Uh, we both have vowels at the end of our last names. Everybody can figure oh, out yeah. we're both very Italian. So um, it always and and we also grew up in you know Long Island, New York, like where the Italians are pretty pretty dominant, and you just always sit back when you hear you know the crazy right wing Italian American guys out here, and you're like, you guys have no idea how how very close we are to a time where we were treated like garbage. Like you have to understand. And there is a thing where I'm watching uh, Tevya and, and you see like how they're depicting the, you know, the, the Ukrainians, the, you know, the Christian side of this. And there is this feeling in a sense, if you don't have the context for the history and, and of who's making this, it is very easy to see those segments of like the drunken Bacchanal of the, of the Ukrainian wedding and just how these people are depicted as, you know, the, the they're lazy, they're drunk, they're just doing it, they're taking over everywhere, and almost see it as one of those, like how they used to depict Italians or the Irish or anything. But then you kind of, again, when you have the history and the context and you watch it, you realize there's a very pointed reason why this is being portrayed the way that it is, and, and that this community needed that particular uh, image there, especially because... You know, and you talk about what Fiddler softens, right? Because Sholem's stories are told from Tevye's point of view uh, and his words, you don't necessarily get any direct depictions of the people he's interacting with. You only get his stories, and you have to kind of infer that creeping sense of things are starting to take a turn. This, you know, the, the, the people around, I mean, in the book, and in Fiddler, he's in a, a shtetl, which is not the case in this one. But, like, you know, this is starting to, things are starting to take a, a, a turn for the worse here progressively. And I think in this film, both for the brevity of trying to fit it into 90 minutes and also just speaking to a community who kind of, there's no sense in depicting things slowly degrading for an audience of people who mostly are like, no, 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 I know how this ends. That's, that's why we're here. I'm. I'm watching this on 42nd Street because of how this ends. So I get, come on, you don't right. need to, you don't need to tease this out. There's no spoilers here for this. You know, I think that's an interesting disparity. There. And I think that's like, you know, the timing we're talking about that kind of marks the characterization of, you know, the, these other kind of the, the enemies in the, in the movies themselves. It, it reminds me of a conversation that Daniel and I recently had on our podcast with the movie Jojo Rabbit, which you know, we don't have to get into kind of the, the depths of, you know, depicting the Holocaust in a lot of film. And that's obviously been something very kind of sensitive and difficult for a long time. But it's just if you watch Jojo Rabbit and if you're familiar with it, and I guess a mild spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it, that Taika with uh, White's Tea film that came out a couple years ago. But, you know, there's a Nazi character played by Sam Rockwell, who by the end of the film has, you know, what I could only call a redemptive arc. He kind of saves Jojo and like becomes, you know, sort of the sympathetic good guy. And you could just imagine, you know, an audience 30 years ago, 40 years earlier, you know, 50 years, whatever it is, you know, much closer to, you know, the Holocaust and kind of the depths of that. Like you could never imagine a depiction like that. You would never want to see a depiction that kind of, you know, sensitized. I actually saw there was a take and I haven't seen the most recent Indiana Jones movie, but I saw, you know, kind of someone on Twitter saying like, you know, it would have been helpful if we got a little <laughs> bit more backstory as to like why we were supposed yep. to hate the Nazis or something. No, and no. it's just like yeah. Oh, yeah. a yeah. generation ago. It, it's insane. Like a generation ago, it's like, and you know, to Tevya's audience, right? No one's questioning that. They don't need to be told why, like, you know, the people who tried to kill us are the people that, you know, we're not supposed to like. But 
you could just imagine, you know, the decades passed and all of a sudden either you're sympathizing the, them more, you know, everyone has to be kind of an anti-hero. No one can be truly bad or truly good anymore. And it's just, it, it makes sense. It's kind of scary to see kind of how much that changes, you know, by the time Fiddler comes out versus, you know, the way that was obviously received to, you know, a 1939 audience. I I will I will say that an interesting thing here with this in particular is that Tevya actually goes further in depicting the 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 Russian Orthodox characters, Ukrainian characters, as just useless layabouts than even Sholem's original stories do. In Sholem's original stories, uh, you know, it's it appears, I mean, from the way it's written, that uh the the husband character, Fedya, is an intellectual and that he's introducing Hava to some of these great works of literature, right? Yeah. It is implied that Gorky, he right? introduces yeah, that he introduces her to Maxim Gorky. Gorky. <laughs> and that and that she's that she's saying, well, you know, it, dad, you have to understand that he's just like him because Gorky was also self-educated. You know, he could be the next Tolstoy dad. He could be the next whatever. And um and so what you have with that is with this film, they go out of their way to try and give a little more uh, give give have a little more agency and kind of just take away any element of redemptiveness to this character even the very first time you see Hava by the water the commentary explained to me the subtitles have the guys the christians just riding by Hava and just yelling hey jew girl pretty jew girl um which I, I, when we were watching it, I joked to my partner, uh, who's, who's Jewish and her family's Jewish, that I, I'm convinced that's what her family thought uh, is how I greeted her when she first explained <laughs> me to them. Because apparently she started out just going like, warning them, she's like, hey, so I've met this guy, he's not Jewish, he's blonde and blue-eyed. Why start with that? That's not going to help. Right. Um, but it turns out what he's actually saying is untranslatable, but it's, a, it's like a, it's a, he basically explained it as, it's a slur. In the in the way of he says, and we're not going to say any slurs in this podcast because we want to still have some advertisers. But he basically goes, imagine like an even more denigrating version of the K word. Like just imagine that it's something that's like that, but with a special like little girl twin uh, tinge to it, little, little sprinkle on top. Yeah. So <laughs> he basically extra. was like, they just don't. There's no way to translate that, but just know what he's saying is so much worse which is like yeah. i said like i said to mike it's interesting because if they could translate it they probably would have because they they do say the k-word in the movie so you know it's uh it's not like they were kind of sidestepping right. any of that but really this... but that yeah that's well, an well it's 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 well it's also interesting too because they don't make him like he kind of just like Let's her he does just let her go at the end, which is interesting. He doesn't really like really fight. She he he comes off and tries to stop her, but she's like, No, I can't, I gotta be with my family. Your family sucks, everything here sucks. My I lost everything, blah blah blah. And he's just kinda he kinda just shrugs and goes, Alright. And just gets on his horse and leave, which is you know, I mean, it's not like he's a he's a hero or anything, but it is interesting that they don't make him do anything villainous or like try to manipulate her emotionally in any way to keep her to stay. It's just like he kind of just knows he lost. He kind of knows, like, yeah, I get it. Wait, he's, he's useless, just, but it but it just is just kind of just like you know, that's kind of all right. Yeah, I get it. Whatever, like. Yeah, you should go. All right, 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah like I saw my family second. like, you know, yeah. rob your your sort mother's of. your dead mother's literal fucking wardrobe. So right. uh wish wish you wouldn't leave, but uh it. <laughs> I get it. Listen, I get it. Hey, you know what? You do what you gotta do. I'll uh, I'll keep reading Gorky, right. it's fine. Yeah. Can I clumsily segue to getting back to the Yiddish of it? Because I, I feel was like about, I was about to say, yeah, I know. You, you drive, you drive. Go ahead. No, go no, ahead. no, no, no. I, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say, like, I know that was something you wanted to make sure we touched on. Uh, yeah. Dark, so please, please. Yeah, I mean, I, I, so, so background. I'm Sephardic. Like my, you know, I'm half Sephardic, half Ashkenaz, which, which means that like my mom's side comes from like Russia and Poland, and my dad's side, he's from Tunisia, like North Africa. So there's different traditions, and Harry, uh, you know can't speak for you but you're you're ashkenaz fully but like i didn't grow up in a house speaking yiddish that was not a thing like we spoke hebrew sometimes and english but yiddish is like a language you know it's like a mixture of like a little bit of german and a little bit of english or a little bit of hebrew kind of like mixed in with a little bit of seasoning on top you know and um and there's like different dialects of yiddish depending on where you're from so i like i said i didn't grow up speaking yiddish but i worked at i don't know if you know in, in new york there's a store called bnh photo Mm-hmm. Um, course, yeah. so mostly run by like Hasidic Jews and their native tongue is, is Yiddish. So I worked there for about five years. So I picked up a lot of the stuff and a lot of the, the, the Yiddish in the film is like very quickly spoken, but I was able to pick it up because I understand Hebrew and he's constantly dropping these like inside references, these quotes. And that is just like the way that he communicates ideas. And I feel like we don't get that as much in Fiddler. But in Tevya, like every other scene, when he's emoting, when he's when he's expressing something to his family, he's quoting the Talmud. He's quoting these passages that are just, you know, what's yours is mine and mine is yours. And he's, you know, talking about uh, I wrote down all the, some of these Yiddishisms and, you know, I don't want to butcher them, but there's like, you know, so much in there. And it's so densely packed that I feel like it's so rich and I feel like it's lost. You know, we talked about it in our, our, our episode. Where like the dub of the of the movie, you know, the English dub, it's really you're losing so much because it's not in that original language. And I feel like the subtitles helped, but doesn't really tell the full story. So I'm not saying that everyone should go speak or to learn Yiddish, but there's certainly an added layer, you know, and I'm sure people who watch foreign language films, French films, Italian films, they know this, like if they speak that language, but something to call out in here. Yeah. And especially, you know, you look at the book. And that, as I was discussing with the other, I think I said it on mic, but when the author doing the translation of the show was, was, was talking about how much he left in of the original Yiddish when he's quoting, right. you know, the Talmud or anything like that, especially because some of the gags are just the fact that he's misquoting these. And this, the humor also relies on you, the audience, knowing the Torah and knowing the Talmud and stuff I didn't pick up on in terms of like the commentary points it out. Uh, one of the last lines he does where he says something and he says it comes from Ecclesiastes and it's from Ruth. He's just got that. He just says it wrong. Now, again, you know, I, I could not tell you what quotes from from where, but I just think like there's a lot of that too that sort of relies on, I don't know if he's necessarily doing malapropisms or anything like that, but it does seem like he's doing at the very least, like he's quoting lines and then going, you know, so as they say, says some quote and then we'll follow it up with his translation, which is mm-hmm. not really not 
he he has a a Torah or Talmud quote for every situation. Yeah, they're just not always applicable, and he right. makes them applicable, which I think yeah. is a great gag for that character. You know, I mean, he's talking to his horse in Yiddish. It's great. I love it. Oh, him and in, in the book, him and the horse have such a time. They are that is I a mean, go-to comedy pairing. How do you beat uh, you introducing know. your main character, then just his goddamn horse won't get up? Ah, oh, you're so stub. You're stubborn. Yeah. Get up! Come yeah. on! God damn it! Get up! And the horse is just looking. I'm like, bro, this is like I'm just it's... not. I'm not getting up, bro. Like, just just yeah. relax. It's also one a, a one joke we lose in Tevia that we have in the book is Tevia loves to repeat to you, well, Tevia is no woman. Tevia didn't cry, or Tevia is no woman. He has more sense, and he keeps doing this. But then the running bit is. Golda has way more sense than <laughs> yeah. him in every situation. In right. every one. Because he takes in some guy from the next town over who tells him, like, oh, listen, I'm an investor. I can help you. What, you know, we mm-hmm. deal as if, and he goes, you know, Tevya is no woman. He understands business, this and that. So we invest, oh, he goes through this whole spiel of how he's going to invest. And he goes, I go to Goldie. Would you believe the first thing she asks me? What business is he in? As though we had time to discuss that. <laughs> Such a, you know. I, I there, I think it's tough because Tevya the movie is closer in tone to Sholem's stories than Fiddler is, but you do in this film lose, and this is no disrespect to Maurice Schwartz, who I want to take a little time to talk about too. But you know, you do sort of lose. There's not as much of the because of the story he's trying to tell with Tevya, which is specifically the Hava story and the and the pogrom. There's not that same level of lovable buffoonery that Sholem kind of, or like the, I don't want to say buffoon, but like Ralph Cramden energy, mm-hmm. you know, kind of blowhard kind of, you know, he, this guy would be perfectly fine if he didn't think he was smarter than he is, that kind of energy. Um, but with Maurice Schwartz, if I could just touch on that for a minute, because obviously, you know, as the registration says, you know, he wrote, you know, he worked on, he directed this, he stars in this. And I have to say, it is a thing that you look at. You just look at this movie, and it is insane to think that it came from a man who worked in the theater, right? There mm-hmm. are so many visually interesting shots. Yes, the, the commentary does call out certain framings where he's a little too close or a little too far back, but there are some interesting camera movements. There's some interesting shot choices that you wouldn't expect from somebody with a theater background. And apparently, that's partly because the year before he makes Tevye, he goes over to the UK and works with Michael Powell of Powell and Pressburger fame on a film called The Man Behind the Mask, which is like a 60-minute B-movie. I started watching it. I watched it to see Maurice Schwartz. I'm not sure I'm going to finish it, because it's not, mm-hmm. not great. But okay. apparently on the set, Schwartz was fascinated by Powell and Powell's artistic process, and was essentially, like, despite being a guy who worked his whole career in the theater, he's on this movie set, as an actor and just decides I'm going to observe this guy. I'm going to learn filmmaking. I'm going to learn the behind the camera process while in front of it. And then translates that into this film that again, you real, I, you would not think this came from a first time filmmaker. You know, I think there is a lot of technical prowess in this. That is even looking at the films made by established filmmakers. Look, I think this is better made than the films Edgar G. Ulmer makes you know, for the, for the Yiddish cinema. And that's a guy who is well known as a filmmaker. 
I mean, Schwartz again, he's best remembered as a as a as a theater person. Obviously, founds the the um, Yiddish art theater, uh, and as I mentioned off mic, you know, has a has a memorial for himself in in, in Mount Hebron Cemetery uh, here in Queens. Hugely influential guy in the Yiddish theater scene, but then also makes this one film that is so significant and probably. There would have been a Tevye film, no matter what. There have been multiple Tevye films. Menachem Golem made a Tevye film at one point. Um, it did not. Well then, Chuck well Norris. then, what is what was he even thinking? Wondering. If it's not Chuck Norris, that you got Charles Bronson right there. And who would want to see Charles Bronson do Tevye? That's exactly. But I know I do. So there have been. So there have been many. So there would have, there have been would have been many versions, but it is just interesting to know like more Schwartz making some that carried a certain pedigree to it because he was so associated with the role. As, quite frankly, as Topol would be decades later, who was performing Tevye from when he was too young to play him to when he was too old to play him. But I just thought that I, mean, I want to make sure we highlight it, a little bit of... It's a very... It's, it's, I mean, listen, it's definitely movie. very much a cheap movie. Not in, not in that it looks bad, but you like you... You're not watching it and seeing like, oh wow, they got they got Gone with the Wind money here. You know, we're gonna I'm gonna keep you know referencing Gone with the Wind because you know I'm, I'm... should be mentioning Transformers in the same breath. I feel like that's we were on a Transformers train before. Yes, we, we were should, doing Transformers. Well, Transformers well, in this movie, you don't know that because Transformers Five <laughs> decides to retcon a lot of historical figures as as allies to the Transformers. Did that you know true. Harriet that Tubman? She was friends with the Transformers. <laughs> the transform. There is a scene where you see the Transformers killing Nazis. Transformers Five. Listen, guys. If what? you want, from the bottom of my heart, to watch some of the craziest cinema ever aimed ostensibly at children, a movie where Optimus Prime is trying to kill God, um, and you find out Merlin was a drunk who found the Transformers and used their ma- their technology as magic. Uh, it's insanity. Um, Michael Bay was really just had no give a shit, just didn't give a shit in the world about anything in that movie. Fantastic. Gotta watch it. Mark Wahlberg finds a transformer. It's fantastic. So, um, but we're, we're, we're obviously, we're going to wind down in a sec, but if we've established nothing else tonight, uh, guys, please, please, I'm begging you do an episode viewing Transformers the last <laughs> night through the Jewish lens. I think the world needs this. I think we okay. all need it. I think Optimus Prime's, you know, maybe find the Job in Optimus Prime's struggle against Unicron. Oh, no, see, oh, oh, no, Mike, see, you, 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 you yeah. clearly haven't watched Transformers 5 recently. Unicron's not the bad guy. Unicron is Earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. The, the god of the Transformers is trying to destroy Earth because Earth is Unicron, and Unicron's going to eat Cybertron, and you're just like, okay, okay, sure, God is trying to kill Optimus, and also use Optimus to kill Unicron, who's now Earth, and Mark Wahlberg's now the new King Arthur. I don't know, something's happening in this movie. I love everything about it. Makes not a lick of goddamn sense. But, yeah, hell, let's go. Um... Harry, you were go- Harry, you've been trying to Sorry. say I was, well, on his I, I just wanted to ask if you guys know if the if the curators of the National Film Regist- Registry actually listen to the podcast because I kind of feel like we're selling them gold right here. Like, yeah, exactly. I, in the next few years, I, they're gonna have me killed. I I will say that uh, it, it's gonna. <laughs> 
It is the only targeted assassination carried out by the Library of Congress. Sure. We did, they didn't even know they had that power, but this time they're black bad. I'm Optimus time, Prime right? and God's trying um, to kill me. It's fine. I get it. I was going to say just about Maurice Schwartz uh, and uh, Topol, there's some similarities there in terms of them sort of being most well-known for their Fiddler-adjacent roles, right? So Topol, hugely uh, influential Israeli actor, he played before that he was like in this movie called Salah Shabbati, where he played like a Mizrahi Jew, like a more Bardic style Jew. And then uh, but, that won the Golden know, Globe, I believe. Right. Yeah. And like that was that was, you know, Fiddler was his sort of w- role that he was most well known for. And I think Maurice Schwartz uh, and fun fact, Topol, I think oh. was also in like Flash Gordon oh, afterwards and a James Bond. Oh, oh, yeah. No, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Flash okay. 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 <laughs> I didn't know that until today. And, so. and for your eyes only. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. and then uh, Maurice Schwartz. I feel like this is probably one of his better known films. Like he was in a couple other movies, but I feel like is is it safe to say that he's probably most well known for this? Oh, he's well known for this. But it, you're you're right. He's in other movies. He's actually interestingly enough, he bookends Tevye, which he okay. directs, working with two directors who would become some of the most influential directors of all t- of their time. Because right before Tevye is The Man Behind the Mask with Michael Powell, an English language film. Okay. And then right after this, he makes a movie, which is a World War II propaganda film called Mission to Moscow, oh. with, which is directed by Michael Curtiz, Ooh. Just, just a few years out from doing Casablanca. So hmm. he's one of these guys. It is kind of like Topol in a sense, where like Topol, I, I remember hearing about, like, because I remember talking to my dad about the weird fact that Topol was, as you noted, just in Flash Gordon and and For Your Eyes Only, and he was kind of saying, like, it was this thing where, like, and you get this every once in a while, where there's an actor from a different scene, whether it's Yiddish theater or some, you know, other country, where something happens and Hollywood just goes, who the f- is this guy? Yeah, we need this and guy, that yeah. was that was the Topol thing, was it was just like, there was just, it was, he was trying to express to me, like, there was just something about, like, now it's easy to look at him and just go, well, Tevye, right? You know, that's his thing, is Tevye. But there was just, when he hit, Fiddler wasn't just a, what it is now, which is like, well, this is this guy's definitive role, he was born to play this. It was just, you saw it, and everybody went to see it, and just went, that guy's a star. Like that guy's got something going on. So when he yeah. shows up as as Hans Zarkov <laughs> in Flash Gordon, um, of course I had that pull. Uh, or nice. or he's in for your eyes only. Like that that is kind of because he was in a way. This is going to be maybe a weird comparison, but I hope it helps you. But Topol was kind of like what Dave Batista was fairly recently. Where like okay, where when he popped up in Guardians, suddenly everybody went, "Whoa, who the who the fuck is this guy?" And right. then, you know, you're putting him in a James Bond film and you're putting him in, you know, a Blade Runner in like these smaller parts. But it was just mm-hmm. like it wasn't just audiences. Everybody in Hollywood was kind of like this guy's got it's or, you know, another one is like Gerard Depardieu mm-hmm. in the sense that like I think Topol and Depardieu also both have the same thing where like neither of them is a guy that you would look at and necessarily go like, well, that guy's got Clark Gable looks. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like you talk to people, especially when they had their big break and there are a lot of you know women you'll talk to i have relatives who will tell you that who was like no he was he was handsome there was something about like topol i I, you know you hear the story sometimes of like he had the beard for fiddler and then when he would walk the red carpet and didn't have the beard and looked 
his actual age, like people started going, oh, hang on. Who is this gentleman here? Yeah. Which is he such a, a hot weird dude. element of that. For yeah. sure. But it was, you I know, mean, but yeah. He was 35, 36 years That's old in so the movie, funny. which yeah. is crazy. I mean, he looks so old in that movie. Like they, they did a very good job with the makeup and the hair and like the paunch and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, I'm looking at this photo now of him on Wikipedia and like, you know, I've kind of got like a Josh Groban thing going on yeah. maybe with the beard and the hair. Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to draw like a modern reference, but even that, you know. But yeah, definitely. I Maurice Schwartz at the time, like how old was he? Rough. No, he was. See. He was definitely older because he had he been was around older, yeah, a bit. Right? I mean, okay. even forty nine. Like, like the, uh, interestingly enough, Julius Adler. We didn't talk. To, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, he at that point was like had an established career, right? In right. the in the theater. Um, I, uh, Julius Adler, who plays the priest, who we didn't talk about much. Um, and I do want to note, by the way. Thing I had no idea about, because uh, in the short story, there's none of the stuff about Hava going to the priest's house. The priest is such a minor character, mm-hmm. and they make it much more in this. I didn't realize that in the Russian Orthodox Church, if you're a convert, you have to live with the priest and his wife until you're fully converted. So that's why Hava's at that house. Um, ah, okay. That explains that, that we're a little bit. But, but Julius Adler was nominated for two Tony Awards in his lifetime. Like Julius oh, Adler okay. was like one of the great actors of the stage. Apparently, he had this incredible, you know, career outside of this. Of course, you know, we mostly know him for this now because, well, cinema has that way to endure a bit. But I, you know, I, I mentioned to Daniel before I got on mic. You know, I took the time today. I had the day off. I went over to to Mount Hebron Cemetery to see the the Yiddish Theater Association has a plot that they maintain for all of these great figures of of Yiddish theater and and, and Yiddish culture. And and it was interesting to see some of these graves still had people leaving, you know, uh, attributes, and to just see that Julius Adler still has people coming to pay tribute, even that's now, cool. is an incredible thing to see, you know. And I think that that's ultimately, obviously, there's a million reasons why this film gets into the National Film Registry, right? Um, you know, it, it's a significant film. As Tom noted, it was lost for decades, so you have to imagine, you know, the idea of like, well, we need to literally use the government to make sure this never gets lost again. Uh, and but I also just think the the Yiddish theater and the Yiddish art scene, uh, you know, Daniel, as you noted, you know, living in New York, you see remnants of it. It was an important mm-hmm. thing to preserve, and and that there oh, are yeah. so many significant figures of this time: Leon Liebgold and 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 um, you know, all these people, Jason and Adler, and, and all these people we're talking about was. This captures that in a way that helps that legacy endure, even if the language that it's in is barely spoken anymore, you know? Because um, it's also, I guess it's also around that time that Yiddish, I mean, I don't know it that terribly well, but, you know, the, what, the booklet with the set kind of points out, like, at the time that this movie comes out, Yiddish is the predominant language and Hebrew is almost being, is almost considered by some a dead language. Mm-hmm. And then that shift happens not that long after this, where suddenly, you know, uh, because I, I think it, it, I'm assuming, it, you know, it has to do with the establishment of Israel and then and, and creating that national language. I'm not going to pretend to have any expertise on that, but it does seem like that shift happens shortly thereafter. I'll co-sign that. Sure. Great. Great. That's, I'll now, be, now I feel confident. I'll be half of the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
I'll just add to that performance as the priest. I mean, it reminded me of that one scene that's kind of outside the house where, you know, Tevi is kind of pushing back and Gold is kind of telling him, you know, maybe don't push too hard. And he he goes one step too far. And then all of a sudden, you know, the priest, he kind of just gets up and like it was legitimately frightening. You know, I think he commands this real power over you kind of realize that as much as this movie has been, you know, sarcastic and lighthearted, you get the sense of he really holds a lot of power in this situation and could you know, and does ultimately ruin Tevye's life. So this is like, there's a real presence and power to that scene that you just reminded me of and makes sense. You know, I didn't know about his kind of background as a, as a stage actor with these uh, Tony nominations, but you know, from my end, that all checks out. I was going to add, uh, you know, like as far as like the legacy of, of Yiddish today, I think it's, you know, it's, it's pretty much like exclusively spoken, like, um, to the exclusion of like sometimes in English, like in, in certain like religious Haredi communities, some kids grow up speaking Yiddish only, no English, no Hebrew. Uh, the prayers are in Hebrew, so maybe, but it's not like conversationally, I feel like maybe it's not. So you'll find in like pockets of Williamsburg or Sunset yeah. Park or Borough Park, um, sometimes in up like upstate New York or things like that, there's like, you know, pockets of, of much more religious Jews speaking Yiddish. Um, also, you know, I feel like, there's a lot there's a movement among younger people to to kind of reclaim yiddish as as like a language that's lost similar to with sephardic jews there's like ladino which is like spanish and hebrew and a, a bunch of other languages kind of so like a, a past guest of ours julie sugar um is trying to speak to her kid in in yiddish and so she she like you know she this is something that she learned and and so it it is around still but certainly like you said uh mike not as much um as, as Hebrew or things like that. And, and of course, a couple of years ago, Menasha came right, out, uh, right. which was entirely in the, And I think apparently there was a film not that long ago that was just Romeo and Juliet in Yiddish. Oh, wow. Which, which harkens back to the golden age of Yiddish cinema, which, you know, part, part of that was a film that was just called Yiddish King Lear. <laughs> nice. That it's, it's in that Kino box set, and it was truly just as simple as, like, it's, it's King Lear in Yiddish, and it made, apparently the reviews were not very good, but it made a shit ton of money. And sure. therefore, producers were like, oh, well, which is the one thing with, with, you know, when we talk about representation in Hollywood or anything like that, is that at the end of the day, if something makes an insane amount of money and didn't cost much, people will keep throwing money at it. That's the one, oh, yeah. the one kind of rule of Hollywood is that they'll get it wrong a lot. They'll take the wrong conclusion from things and go, oh, what's that? You well, want more well, multiverse well, movies? No, that's not, well, dog, that's not why we like everything everywhere. It's the horror movie this, rule, baby. But, Yes, yes, people will connect to it. It doesn't cost much, and everyone benefits. Um, just one thing I wanted to bring up before we get to the Oscars, which is something I think, kind of just through talking about this, I think is an important part of this movie's legacy. And not, not something you would think about, but just talking about how this is not like the first Tevye story. Like they're adapting, like kind of in the middle of the Tevye stories and all of that. That's something they, they're still doing today. And like, it, like this is a thing that Hollywood keeps doing, where they adapt books, a book series. But like, oh, we're we're adapting book seven first, and you just go, why? Oh, I don't know. And it's just like, oh, but what? Okay, well, why why are we doing the the fifth James Bond book is the first one, guys? Don't worry about it. That's just how it's going to be. I it, it's just, but it's just interesting how this one does it in a smart way, where you have the history in the background of kind of like, oh, well, the one daughter's gone, but we're not talking about it, but it's like kind of there sprinkled in. 
I feel like that's something, I don't know, like, oh, we, we could just take a franchise, a, bo- a series of books, a series of stories, and we can kind of pick and choose how we tell them and everything. I don't know. I, I thought that was, I think that's an interesting little legacy that this movie did, because I, I, I don't really think that was something that was really being done before this, if at all. Because it's doing with Tevye and both of them, Fiddler too, and then I'll you know wrap this up. But you know, it's it's telling the story that's needed for the time. This film of Tevye is very focused on the Jewish diaspora of the time, and also conscious of what is going on in Europe at the moment. So you don't want to have, and your audience doesn't want to see sympathetic depictions of the people that cast them out because it's happening again, uh, you know, at that time in in you know in thirty nine. Right. And they they want a story that is focused on faith and focused on the family because at the end of the day that's that's all you have. And meanwhile, with Fiddler, you know, I was listening to an interview with Stephen Skybell, who was played Tevye in the Yiddish production, mm-hmm. and he talked about his relationship with that musical changing throughout his life because when he saw it as a little kid, and he knew it was his grandpa's story, right? His grandpa had come from, and he said, as a little kid, I watched that ending and I didn't understand why people were crying. Because I was like, yeah, he's going to America. And when Grandpa came to America, everything was good. And like, you know, it's happy because we've got hamburgers here. And then he goes, you know, and I got older and kind of understood all that he was leaving behind. And I think Fiddler, yes, it softens things. It absolutely does. Um, But it does it because that show was aimed at people in America who, you know, are second generation, third generation, who as was happening kind of across the culture, we're trying to reconcile with like what their grandparents or their ancestors had been through. I mean, you know, I was talking to Tom off mic about it happens again, you know, years later with a movie, I think is legitimately great, but um, an American tale, Mm -hmm. you know, that's Steven Spielberg essentially going like, I want to make a version of the, the Jewish immigrant story that children can understand. That is, you know, I mean, the, the, there's no cats in America number is one of the best, one of the best ways to kind of explain to kids like yeah, this is this is what was going on without having to get into. Okay, all so what again? One final thing that actually I feel like brings all of this context, like just wraps it up in a neat little bow. Because not just of what's going on at the time in Europe at the time of the stories, and then what's going on in Europe at the time of this movie. This movie comes out December 1939. Do you know what happens in February of 1939 in New York City? There is a 20,000, there is a, a Nazi rally held in Madison Square Garden where 20,000 people attended. Uh, so this was, this wasn't an abstract thing that was happening in Europe. We're two years away from the war, getting into the war ourselves, but this is a thing that's actually happening in America at this time. You know, so. Well, yeah, literally in the same city where the yeah, literally right down the street from where the this theater is, you know, a few uh, twenty thirty miles away from where they actually filmed this movie. You know, it's like this is not this is not an abstract thing. They are actively dealing with the new version of the anti-Jewish movement that this story is kind of dealing with. So. Speaking of 1939, as we always do, and I feel like this is going to be an easy one for Tom, but Tom, how do you think Maurice Schwartz's Tevye performed Zero. at the Academy Awards that Good year? Zero. Now, 
That is correct. But but let's see, because we've already evoked one of the films. We have covered this year so many times. Tom, can you tell me any of the films nominated for or one winning Best Picture that year in 1939? Keep in mind, four of them we have talked Dude, about it's on this show at night. I, I don't even know where I am. Okay, so the Best Picture nominees were Dark Victory, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Love Affair, oh, yeah. Mr. Smith Goes to yeah. Washington, yeah. Ninochka, yeah. Of Mice and Men, yeah. Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, Wuthering Heights, and the winner mentioned many times in this episode, Gone with the Wind. Uh, just of note, of those, uh, Mr. Smith, Ninochka, Stagecoach, Wizard of Oz, Wuthering Heights, and Gone with the Wind are all in the National Film Registry. I believe 1939 is the most represented year in the registry Pretty good year. Whoa. overall. Um, but, yeah. And of those, we have covered uh, Smith. So Smith, Ninochka, Wizard of Oz, and Gone with the Wind are the ones that all get in uh, in the first two years. And then Tevya obviously inducted in this the only the third year of the National Film Registry. And as Harry said up top, and as uh, any essay talking about this film loves to point out as well this is the first uh non-english language film in the registry there are more probably not as many as there should be uh but they do tend to more recently i think they've been a lot better about kind of getting back to that idea of the totality so um obviously as we discussed this is going uh potentially on on multiple feeds so it feels a bit weird for me to just thank you guys for coming on since we're all in the same spot but I will, because you guys took a real flyer on this one, both in terms of a film you'd never seen and also coming on a podcast with people you don't know. So, you know, this could have gone a million ways. I appreciate, uh, Daniel, Harry, you guys taking a, taking a chance on this one and coming on and joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. This was a real pleasure. Uh, I really, like, one of the things, you probably know this about having a film podcast, is that, like, you get to watch a, sometimes a brand new movie that you don't know anything about until... You watch the movie and then you go in this like deep, deep rabbit hole of like knowing everything about it for a week and then you go on to the next one. But, you know, it's it, this was a really interesting film to watch and then being able to watch like Fiddler and, and compare the two was a real treat. So, yeah, really thank you guys. This was awesome. Yeah. I, yeah. And just want to echo, echo what Daniel said. Thank you guys so much for having us on and having us watch this movie. You know, it like, this movie kind of being put on the registry, I think we've made the case for it, but especially, you know, in its context and the time that it came out, it was probably at the time significant, but retroactively an incredible snapshot of a time and also of a, you know, a real anxiety kind of around the world. So it was, uh, it's a fascinating movie. I also loved when you were listing some of the Oscar, you know, nominees that year, because it's just putting in context with these, you know, American classics with like the Wizard of Oz with Gone with the Wind. They're those, their depiction of just like this American dream versus kind of what was going on in Yiddish cinema at the time. It was just fascinating. So thank you guys and for ha having us on. And it was our pleasure. And all this, this great talk fascinating uh, for a movie, like I said before, knew nothing about. So uh, it was good to really dive into all the historical context, the, 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 the books, the writing and the, the history of Yiddish, like, just everything this was just a great well-rounded conversation and uh despite you guys keeping me up this late which i'll still you know i won't hold it too hard against you it'll just you know uh, I, thank you for making it actually worthwhile staying up this late <laughs> sure yeah lightning round question can i sure. can i do a surprise Please, attack yeah. what is the italian version of tevia like what is the 
the version of like the old country Italian movie where everyone's like, oh yeah, this is like something my grandparents like experienced in Italy. And like, is there, is there such a thing? Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's two movies that count as one movie. I can tell you this flat out. It's the Godfather and the Godfather part two. Yeah. <laughs> Without a doubt, okay. my, my grandfather will talk to you till you are blue in the face about how much that movie gets right about, he goes, even the way they eat the spaghetti. You know, so many movies when they show Italians and then the fact that like, you know, when he go when Michael goes back to the old country and even sure. I mean, my my partner and I went to Ellis Island recently, uh, you know, to, to see the, the site. And when you walk into that room where they took all the people in and all I kept thinking, it's so silly. But I just kept going, God, Coppola got it very right. right. Like he yeah. just got it. So, I mean, there are other films you can talk about that are maybe, you know, more like Italian American, because at this point. I think, you know, in one sense, and I'm not going to speak too much, but like there is there is a specificity to and we talked about this with with a serious man. There is a specificity to the Jewish American identity and also the Italian American identity, because in both cases, right. a lot of us wound up in New York and started going, I guess we have to figure out some new stuff. Right. I guess we I mean, I guess that's also true for the Irish, too. Like corned beef sure. and cabbage is purely an Irish American thing. You go to Dublin. Nobody knows what the fuck you're talking about there with that. That is that came out of an old comic strip. Well, well just like even with the language thing about Godfather and Godfather too, you know, depending on the version you watch, you know, they they don't even subtitle the Italian. Like you kind of just have to just like figure out the context yeah. clues. It's like when Spielberg did West Side Story without any subtitles, and people were like, "Oh, is this going to make the whites upset?" And Spielberg's like, "I don't care. I'm Steven Spielberg. Like, deal with it, bro. Like, like I just made an amazing movie." Yeah, I mean, that's there, there's a reason why, and we talked about it on our Godfather episode, but, like, the movie works because Robert Evans had the genius idea of, if we're going to make a movie about Italians, we should hire an Italian to make it. Right. Of course, he did also then say, you know, if it's a spaghetti picture, hire a spaghetti twirler. But listen, you know, Bob Evans is a legend. I own his ties. That's a whole I'm thing. Don't even worry it. about it. Um, but in any event... Uh, that's all, we're not getting into it now. I, I did a lot. I spent a lot of money on an estate <laughs> auction. Anyway. Daniel Harry, thank you guys so much for joining us. We're so thrilled. Uh, to the listeners, depending on what feed you're on, you know, you may be hearing different things. Uh, but uh, at least over here on You're Missing Out, uh, we will be, if you stick around, we'll be talking about our picks for the National Film Registry. We're sorry. And if you're over on Jews on Film, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know what they're going to, uh, you know, maybe they'll tax on. Quite frankly, maybe they'll just go, that seems like a, that seems like a lot. We've put in a lot of time with these guys already. I don't want to have to hear them anymore. So who knows? But either way, uh, everybody else, uh, stick around. We'll be right back with our pick to the National Film Registry. Thank you guys so much for joining us. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and me, who can submit their nominations for the registry in the form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of every episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. The only criteria? It must be an American film that's at least 10 years old. Here are today's picks. So what I really kind of latched onto with this pick was the um, 
the family setting, the re- the way it kind of throws you into a, a culture we're not very well versed in these days. Even back then, probably not a culture pe- a lot of people were very well versed in. Uh, and it just kind of throws you in, and you're watching this family dynamic with the you know tradition is a big part of it, and the traditional choices and the father try you know trying to impart on the child a way like the way life is supposed to be led and kind of being led astray quote unquote in this movie but in my movie literally being led astray down the wrong path just all of that stuff uh that really runs through tevya uh in its own weird way i was like this is kind of the perfect in my my mind at least the perfect pick um my pick is a bronx tale I don't, it, it just kind of hit me like a lightning bolt. I'm like, yeah, there, it's a lot about the Calergero not wanting to be like his father and going against the traditional way of a working class Italian and wanting to go more towards something a little sexier, which I mean, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like obvious in this, in Tevia, but there is the part of it where it's like, oh, they, you know, this, this Catholic boy, he gets to like, you know, read books that aren't just, you know, the Torah. He gets to like go out and do other things. There's 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 a life outside of the farm. And what's what's is a big thing with Calergero and the father's very strict. You know, De Niro's very strict. And then there's, you know, as the movie goes on, seeing that this, you know, going down this path is not the right way. It it leads to issues. I don't know. I just I and I think a Bronx tale is like low key one of the most like iconic movie of the 90s in a way like so many people know that movie so many people talk about that movie quote that movie um it, if it honestly if it like wasn't for goodfellas it would probably be de niro's best movie like most loved movie of the 90s um it's just, it's it's a movie that in 2 months is finally getting an HD release which I'm so happy about i i feel like it's a movie that in many ways doesn't get the respect it deserves and in this context, uh, I actually think it really fits uh, in its exploration of uh, Italian American uh, norms and traditions, and the way they clash with, uh, in this case, the outskirts, the uh, the uh, outcasts of Italian Americans in America. Uh, so yeah, my pick is A Bronx Tale. So I was between two options, and I think I've been uh, between two options up until maybe the second. Uh, you know, there are two kind of natural uh, choices for me that I both think should be in the registry. I'm basically opting for the one that uh, I think I'm going to have a harder time finding as much of a connection to in, in uh, future episodes. The The film that I have in mind is more about the, you know, the way that Tevya speaks not just to the Jewish experience, but the specificity of Jewish life in the in this case, not a shtetl, but, you know, but these, these communities, uh, you know, what in the musical would be on a tef. In this particular Eastern European area, there is a film that came out in 2009 that uh, Best Picture nominated, but has only grown in its esteem because of how well it captures the Jewish experience in the 1960s. And much like how Tevya is beset upon by these tragedies, and constantly questioning God. Larry Gopnik in a Cohen, The Coen Brothers' A Serious Man is trying to navigate. He's a man who loves physics. He's a man who loves logic and answers. 
and is trying to navigate that uh, in a world that is becoming, uh, to his mind, increasingly hard to understand, you know, and turning to rabbi after rabbi, all of whom give him vaguer and vaguer answers as more and more tragedy befalls him, right? And in both cases, you are kind of capturing the experience of people trying to not just make sense of things in a cosmic way, but also just try and make sense of their day-to-day as it collapses around them, right? So I find that, obviously, the parallels between Job and Tevye and Job and Larry Gopnik have all been explored ad infinitum, but there is just much like what you feel with what Maurice Schwartz did with his film and the little details like the, the, you know, the touching, you know, kissing the mezuzah and the, you know, the uh, the shiva stool and all of that in the same way there is such a specificity to what the cohens are doing with a, a serious man right even as simple as larry's kid calling him up and telling him you got to fix the aerial so i can watch f group there's just it just captures a moment so well to say nothing of of course i didn't even think to mention this the old eastern european prologue that they do with the the husband and the wife and the dibbik so I just think it's it's a remarkable document of a time and a place uh, in our culture that I think needs to be captured and needs to be preserved. So for me, it's a serious man. But it's going really- Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you again to Daniel Zana and Harry Ottensaucer for joining us. Next week, author Donald Crafton joins us for the 1914 animated short, Gertie the Dinosaur. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry.